How are most creators with degrees in creative fields, especially high art, living today? What are some of the unexpected ways they're navigating the world of uncertain arts funding, dwindling local art scenes, and the attention economy? And what might we learn from them? My name is Emma Katrovas, I'm an opera singer turned experimental performer, and I decided to find out, one artist at a time. Each creator I interview is an answer to how to live as an artist today, and there are as many answers as there are artists. If you like the idea behind this podcast, consider subscribing to the newsletter sent out on the 13th of every month. You can find all the relevant links in the description. Here's to being on the verge. And the fish were frightened. So beautiful. Kate Gale is a poet, prose writer, librettist, president of the American Composers Forum, and founder of Red Hen Press, a Los Angeles-based independent literary publishing house, one of the foremost of its kind in the United States. Her story is both all-American and quite unusual. I don't want to spoil Kate's telling of her own life story, but it involves escaping a cult at the age of 18 to sleep in the woods with little more than a couple Bibles and a harmonica, going to college just despite a conservative boyfriend, and then deciding, soon after getting a master's in English, two kids, and a divorce, that she would transform Los Angeles into a literary city. The result was Red Hen Press, named after the American fable about the little red hen who sowed her own wheat to make her own bread, a story meant to teach American children about the virtues of hard work and independence. And you know that hi-hat snare sound that never resolves, which sounds like background music in a Hollywood movie about fast-talking people in the frenetic publishing biz? That's what I hear when Kate rattles off names of authors and books and the nitty-gritty numbers of running an indie publishing house. Kate has the practicality and drive of an entrepreneur and the heart of a poet, which I also find to be quite all-American. In the best sense of the term. Kate and I talk about the healing power of storytelling, how a manuscript goes from being one of thousands of submissions to becoming a book, how stories aren't always enough, the taboos around money, the insight manuscript submissions give into the collective psyche, and why ebooks aren't replacing print books anytime soon, among other things. I grew up in a cult in southern New Hampshire, and at 18, when I left there, I had a dog on a bailing twine string, a sleeping bag, a Bible in English and a Bible in French, because why not a couple of different Bibles, and a couple of dollars and a harmonica. That's really kind of all you need, a little reading material, a dog, a sleeping bag, and something to make music. So I wandered off, I slept in the woods for a few days, and uh, eventually I started hanging out in the library, and that's where I found my first job, which was babysitting. I really had no job skills to speak of. Within a few months, I had saved up enough money and, and moved myself to Richmond, Virginia. And I was dating a guy who had also left the cult and he said to me after we'd been dating for a bit that God had told him we should get married. And I was like, ah, oh, 
I talked to God all the time. God never mentioned you at all. And then he mentioned that I was not to go to college. I had actually never thought of going to college. I wasn't even sure what people did in college. You know, I had grown up with this cult. I had very little education and mostly read the Bible and listened to the Messiah. But there was a college that I drove by every day on my way to my babysitting job. And it said J. Sergeant Reynolds Community College. So the next day I stopped there and I said, I'd like to enroll in this college. And they said, uh, do you have a high school diploma? And I said, no, not really. And they said, well, do you have your birth certificate? And I said, I had that, but I lost it when I was sleeping in the woods. And they said, well, you're going to have to get a high school diploma, or at least you're going to have to take some tests to show kind of where you are school-wise. And then they said, what is your major going to be? And I said, why would I need a major? And they're like, well, that's going to be like what you're going to school for, what you're going to do in four years. And I was like, wait a minute, is this thing going to take four years? What about the rapture? And they're like, the rapture? And I was like, yeah, you know, the second coming. And so this lovely woman's like, okay, um, if the rapture happens while you're in college, that's going to be fine. But I think you should just probably go to college anyway. Okay, rapture happens mid-college, you know, I guess I'll just, I'll just be ready for that. So she said, you still would want to make a plan. I mean, you're going to college for something. What would you do afterwards? And by this time, I had done a couple different jobs, and one of them was picking fruit, and some of the other people picking fruit spoke Spanish. So I figured I would be a Spanish major, and then I could just, as soon as I finished this college degree, I could travel around the U.S. picking fruit, because I very much liked fruit. And I like the idea of traveling and seeing the U.S. So two of my missions could be accomplished right there. The traveling, the fruit, plus I really like languages. I, I was pretty much thinking that I, I would like to learn another language. So three things right under my belt. So I told her I wanted to be a Spanish major. And I enrolled and I became a Spanish major at J. Sargent Reynolds Community College, which was mostly African-American. And so my fellow students would take me to all these cool places to listen to music. And I learned a lot uh, while I was there. And I was there for one year. And then I decided to transfer to Arizona State. And when I was a sophomore there, I was talking with one of the professors there whose name was Rita Dove. And Rita was asking me what my major was. And I opened my mouth to say, I'm going to be a Spanish major or I'm a Spanish major because I'm going to be a traveling fruit picker. By this time, I might have been two and a half or three years out of the cult. And so I realized that that sounded foolish. <laughs> you know, she was, of course, the future poet laureate of the U.S. And I must have realized that that sounded a little silly. So I said, I don't know, um, thinking of becoming an English major, because by that time I was taking as many English classes as I could. I was studying poetry with Peggy Shoemaker. I'd taken a poetry class with Norman Doobie, and I was extremely excited about creative writing. And she said, oh, that sounds good. Do you think that your love for letters and literature actually comes from growing up with scripture? Thus saith the Lord, as they say. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time locked in rooms as a child for various infractions of the rules. Things I didn't really consider that serious, getting up in the middle of the night, shutting off the electricity for the place, etc., what I would have considered pranks. But uh, during that time that I would have been locked in rooms or whatever, I read books. And so I think that people that suffer from trauma often find stories as a sort of refuge. And so 
I read pretty much everything I could find at the farm. The place was called The Farm. And th there weren't a lot of books there besides the Bible, but there were some. And when people would join the farm, like whatever books they had would mostly be thrown away or something, but somebody would have to sort those books out and decide which ones were appropriate. Sometimes yours truly would do the sorting, would hide away some of the books. So I read everything I could. And sometimes we were taken to a town library and, you know, it's where I got to read The Secret Garden and Little Prince and books like that. So I lived in books. I lived in books and, and kind of imagined myself sometime getting out. It wasn't a love for literature. It was a love for stories as a, as a way of escaping. And so every night before I went to sleep, I told myself stories it's something I've never stopped doing. Everybody that's there doesn't get to see their parents. So my, my mother was at the call, but she was a few miles away. And so the kids there would do this thing that I now know is called Orphan Rock. So you're just kind of like kids would be sitting on top of their sleeping bags because their sleeping bags are on the floor, so they're just sleeping on the floor. And people would just be like, kids would just be like, mm -hmm kind of rocking back and forth like that. And then I would say, like, guys, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story to try to get the moaning in the room to kind of quiet down. And then I would just tell everybody a story. And then the little ones would quiet down a little bit. So the storytelling is the thread of my childhood that kept me alive. And so I carried it through with me to adulthood. The idea that if I could become a storyteller, I could keep myself alive in the world. And sometimes a story is not enough. Sometimes you have to just sit at the bottom of the well and look up and you see the sun go over and you see the moon go over and you just have to sit at the bottom of the well. But a story is still a good thing. Well, maybe when a story isn't enough, maybe that's poetry. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I have a poetry book coming out next year called The Loneliest Girl. And I think of that book being a poetry book about when a story isn't enough. Uh, it's very much about being at the bottom of the well. We all have our own madness or darkness. Yeah. So by the time I graduated from Arizona State, I was an English major. And part of the reason I decided to go to graduate school was because I had no job skills. I'm probably not the only person who has decided to go to graduate school because they did not have a long list of job skills. So I moved to California and my plan when I moved to California was to write a great book, change the world and get a PhD. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I got pregnant in my master's program because I very quickly met somebody and got married like a year after I moved to California. And then like I instantly got pregnant on the honeymoon and that slowed me down, followed by a second child, followed by a divorce. So by the time I was 30, I announced to my small group of friends, okay, I figured it all out now. I am going to transform Los Angeles into a literary city. And the way I'm going to do this is by starting a publishing company. Then someone in the group was like, wait a minute, this is a city of like eight to 10 million people. You just left that marriage with virtually nothing. You've got two kids. I don't think you've got what it takes to just transform LA into a literary city. And I said, don't be a hater. I got this. <laughs>
In the beginning, I did have a friend who jumped in with me. His name's Mark Call, and he became the book designer and I became the editor. Mark and I eventually got married so we could fight about the press more easily. What we had originally started is what would now be called a micro press. So a micro press publishes three to five titles a year, is usually distributed by a very small distribution company and just gets its books out really to a very small community. Now we publish 25 to 27 titles a year. Our books are nationally and internationally available. We go to the Frankfurt Book Fair, London Book Fair, Guadalajara. Um, I've even been to the Beijing Book Fair a couple of times and sold books there. Some of our notable authors include Percival Everett, Chris Abani, Amy Liu, Martha Cooley, Kristen Yadis-Young, Dariel Suarez. So we've done some big books that have that have really done well in the marketplace at this point. LA became a literary city with or without me. I mean, at the time that Red Hen was getting started in, in the early 90s, there were no MFA programs. The bookstores were closing. The presses were closing. Sun and Moon was closing. North Point had closed. Black Sparrow was closing. So all these presses that were on the West Coast were closing. Capra Press was closing. And so it just really felt like the West Coast, you know, it had one big literary agency, which is the Sandy Dykstra Agency, but it just didn't feel like there was really a vibrant literary scene. Now there's all these MFA programs. There's the Los Angeles Review of Books. So there's a much more vibrant scene here. And it, it is not due to my work. I think Red Hen is just a part of that ecosystem. And the writers that I admire here, Judith Freeman, Lisa C., Susan Strait, Janet Fitch, I believe that all of these important writers are being recognized nationally. You know, I, f I feel like L.A. is a good, a good city to be a writer. Can you just give people an idea just how many manuscripts you have to read every year and how many of them actually make it past the first reading? That's a good question. So there are about 6,000 manuscripts coming in a year that I'm going through. A certain number of those make it to what we call the iPad. And that means that I'm going to take a second look at that and take some time with them. Between three and 500 get onto the iPad and I'm going to have to look at more seriously. What's problematic about this is like I just did a cleanup of the iPad and there were 50 manuscripts on there. And there's going to be another 50 in another month or so. And we're only taking 25 books. And so one of the things you feel like you want to say to most people is most of the time when you're getting rejected, it's just because the publisher can only take so many books. The numbers are against you in a certain sense especially with an independent press, whereas with a press that's publishing 400 books a year or 500 or something, your chances are a little bit better. But, but the problem with that is that with us, if a book sells, you know, 5,000 copies, we're going to be pretty happy. So I was talking with someone the other day and they were like, you know, my friend's book only sold 6,000 copies and she feels so upset about it. But her friend's book came out with one of the big New York presses. So it only sold 6,000 books and she's not happy. Her agent's not happy. The publisher's not happy. If I published a book and it sold 6,000 copies, I would be happy. My publicist would be happy. We'd all be happy. So that's the thing is that when you're sending it to a big press, they're looking for a book that's going to sell 30,000 copies or something. And so 
the, the, the odds are harder at that level. Whereas like the UV Zalco book that we took on that's coming out in the spring, I only cry with emoticons. I have high hopes for this book. I really think it's going to sell well. But frankly, at the point it hits 5,000 copies, I'm going to be pretty happy with young UV. Whereas if he had been with the big New York press, they'd be disappointed at 5,000 and so on. So when you're sending out a book, those are the odds you have to yeah. weigh, you know. In a way, it seems like you should have more chance with an indie because they're not expecting massive sales. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a challenging thing. So when I have read a, a manuscript, I sit down with what we call the M&M team, which is marketing and media, and I kind of pitch the book to them. So if I can't sell those four people on the book and get those four people excited, then good luck. You know, if I hear myself in the room talking with them and they're just like, what, Kate, this doesn't sound that exciting. You know, I'm going to have to say this pitch 50 more times. London, Frankfurt, New York, New York, I'm going to have to pitch it at the New York Times, at Publishers Weekly, at, London, at Library Journal, at New York Review of Books, at Kirkus. I'm going to have to pitch this a bunch of times. And then I'm going to have to do it 50 times at Frankfurt and 30 times in London. And and Beijing and like that, I'm going to have to say this pitch a lot of times. So unless it sounded good when I said it to my small group, then that's not good, right? I give them my pitch. And then my media manager, Monica Fernandez, has done a little assessment of what she thinks the possibilities are in terms of selling the book. So she has looked up the author their social media, all that kind of thing. So she's kind of made some guesses. We do not necessarily start guessing numbers at an editorial meeting, but we are deciding who we think is going to buy the book. And that is continuing to shape our editorial process. So like there's a book that we published a few years ago that was about a woman losing her mother. And I was pretty interested in this book, partly because it seemed to me that like a lot of women my age were losing their mothers and were pretty, pretty upset about the situation. And so I thought this book on the woman losing her mother would do well because I felt like it was a conversation a lot of people were having. But the book did not do nearly as well as we had thought. Either we didn't market as well as we could have. That's one possibility. Or the other possibility is that when you've just lost your mother, you don't want to run out and buy a book about that. I think that's probably a better possibility. So what's true is that if I were offered another book on that subject, I probably wouldn't take it at this point. We tried to do it twice and we did not succeed in being able to find a marketplace for that subject matter. So I, I do think who's going to buy this book I would say, if you were saying, what are we focused on? When we're publishing poetry, we're looking for excellent poetry. I, I have a broad range in terms of excellent poetry, sort of from Douglas Kearney to Cynthia Hogue to Rin Sato to, to David Mason. In other words, just excellence no matter where it's going. In terms of prose, I really feel like I want the book to have many layers and to be a really great story that hooks the reader and brings the reader in. I want the book to be something that I can get through, but that you keep thinking about afterwards.
This other book that we published last year by Jennifer Risher called We Need to Talk. It was about people and money. I think she thought this book was mostly for people who have a lot of money who are confused about issues around money. But I think a lot of people, first of all, were interested in it because money is kind of a taboo subject. People don't talk about how much they make or how much they spend. And so it turned out to be one of our best-selling books. Another book that we published last year that I was extremely excited about was a book called Buy Me Love by Martha Cooley, because it had to do with this whole idea of someone who bought a lottery ticket and then carries it around because they don't want to cash it in because they, they don't want to become somebody who has a lot of money and they're ambivalent about that. And I felt like there's this ongoing conversation in the States about the 1%. And the whole idea of us and them around the 1%, and particularly because we published this other book around money, I was acutely aware of this. I mean, once I'd read that book about money, I was just obsessed with this. I had once walked on a plane after we had accepted that book, and the man behind me said to the first class in general, you know, sort of F you all to, 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 the, to the people in the first class. And I realized... Like I've flown first class once or twice when I just got bumped up because something mm. went wrong with my reservation or something and they bumped me up to first class. And so I thought anybody could be flying first class and you're assuming all these people are rich people and therefore should be damned. And anyway, even if every single person in this first class is stinking rich, does that make them bad people? And it just like became like so interesting to me how we talk about, you know, filthy rich people, but being dirt poor. And like, <laughs> there's so much dirtiness around rich and dirtiness around being poor. You're dirt poor and you're filthy rich, right? And so the Martha Cooley book really fascinated me because this woman doesn't want to cash in the lottery ticket because she doesn't want to become one of those people. So again, this is the through line I look for in a Red Hen book. I couldn't stop thinking about Martha Cooley's book because I think that often we feel that fate has done us a wrong turn. That's, that's the idea of Fiddler on the Roof. Would it have been so difficult to make me a wealthy man? <laughs> Would it have upset some vast eternal plan? Well, speaking of money, I, I mean, I interview a lot of Europeans and there's a, such a different ecosystem here to funding indie anything, indie anything having to do with art. Is Red Hen really uh, self-sufficient as a business or do you get grants of any sort? Or do you have private donors? Great question. So, um, so in terms of sort of the ecosystem of publishing in, in the States, there's the big five and mm. they make money. They make sure that they publish enough big Fifty Shades of Grey, Da Vinci Code type books to make money. There's the university presses and the university presses are funded out of the universities. So there's kind of like nonprofits with with deeper pockets. Then there's the for-profit indies, of which there are very few in the United States. There were a lot more when I got into publishing, but there's like, there's Soho, Tin House, Other Press, Akashic. I can't think of what other ones there are, but there's an exquisite few. And then there's the not-for-profit indies. 
Three of them are in Minneapolis, Grey Wolf, Milkweed, Coffee House. There's Heyday Press in Berkeley, Copper Canyon. So there's quite a number of not-for-profit publishing companies in the United States. And Red Hen is one. Red Hen is one. And we're all 501c3s. And if you have national distribution, I think that's the big qualifier, you qualify to get funding from the National Endowment of the Arts. Now, the NEA does not give you very much funding. I think Red Hen has ranged between ten and 30000 a year. So that's like 1% of our budget. But we get more funding from the city and the county. Not much from the state of California. Historically, the state of California has not had much arts funding. It's one of the richest states in the country, yeah. but a little short on the arts funding. But I think that post-pandemic, apparently there's going to be a little more arts funding. So we're hoping for that. So in terms of government funding, we think of NEA, potential state, city, county. The city and county are, are very generous in, in Los Angeles. And then, as you mentioned, there's donors and there's private foundations, and we apply for all of that. We have somebody writing grants all the time. And then in terms of donor cultivation, um, that's been my job since the beginning at Red Hen. I am supposed to be the outgoing one. <laughs> I'm really not that much of an extrovert, but I have gotten a little better at it. Gray Wolf is the biggest of the not-for-profit indies, and I think that their revenue stream from development that isn't earned income is something like, 35% or something like that. I think Red Hen has about 50% earned income and 50% from fundraising activities. We're, we're always kind of working on that balance. And, you know, the fundraising activities are what make it possible to run our writing in the schools program and also really to publish poetry because the prose could break even but the poetry just is never going to. Unless you're selling at least 4,000 copies of a book, it's going to lose money. So speaking of being in a, the 1%, you might be one of the people in the 1% of people who read the most books and who have the most kind of therefore overview both of unpublished want to be published material and published material. And I just feel like that must be such an interesting kind of insight into the collective psyche. Is there a, a message that you're getting about the current moment, maybe in the last 10 years? I'm, I'm waiting for the COVID novels. Let me just say that <laughs> all right off the bat. Yeah. I'm kind of waiting for that. I've already gotten a couple, but I'm, I'm sure there's going to be more. What I'm seeing more of is more people writing about trauma that they've experienced. Mm. And I think that if you can write about that really well, that it works. And, and I don't mean that it has to have a, a redemptive arc, but I think after My Absolute Darling came out, um, that was a big novel that had to do with trauma and, and, and abuse that, that a lot of people wanted to dive into that territory. So I, I started seeing a lot more books around that. The other thing I've seen more people writing about, and I think that this is kind of way overdue, is people writing about issues around caregiving. I haven't seen anything that's like, okay, this is the book we're going to do. But I do think that the amount of exhaustion and work it takes to be a caregiver, whether you're taking care of a parent or a friend or a sibling or whoever, and whether they're elderly or have dementia or had, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease or just whatever the case may be, I think is, is enormous. And I think that, that it hasn't been written about 
Like, I can't think of a great novel on caregiving. There's definitely room for that. And I'm seeing more books on that, but I just haven't seen something that's like, okay, this is it. But it's a theme that's coming up. It is definitely. There was a moment where people thought, oh, everyone's going to transfer to Kindle now. <laughs> and that just didn't happen, did it? No. I mean, really didn't happen. What is it about the physical object? And do you think, what do you think it is its future? I have really spent some time analyzing this mm -hmm. subject. And because I have pretty much continually since 1989 been, I don't think there's ever been a semester that I wasn't teaching at least one college class. I also kind of have a sense of what college students are interested in. So I think part of the idea when ebooks first emerged was that college students particularly would want to read on Kindles. So here's part of the reason that that didn't happen. College students have a computer that they're working on, and then they would also have, of course, a phone. So you're asking them to pay for another device for which there is no use except to read. So that's out. So I started looking for Kindles on planes when I traveled. And the only people I saw with Kindles, I would go over and be like, hey, I see you with a Kindle. What do you do for a living? And I would often find that they were in my own business. Oh, you're an agent? Oh, you're a publicist? <laughs> of course you have a Kindle, right? Yeah. And once in a while, I would see somebody who was a grad student who was kind of loaded up with stuff to read for grad school but not regular people for the most part. So problem number one, it's another device that doesn't do much else except allow you to read. Second problem is that if you think about who we're selling books to, my first goal are people that are I think of as being intellectuals and cultured, right? And then my second goal is just anybody who reads at all. So when you think about that, that's a fairly small group of people who do a lot of reading. So let's get back to this group for a minute, okay? What do these people do for a living? Well, most of them stare at a screen for a living. So when they get off work and they come home, they want to sit on their couch, sit on their back porch, wherever they're sitting, pour a glass of wine, tequila, beer, what have you. I guess if they're in Kentucky, maybe a little bourbon. and do another activity. So a leisure activity would be you pick up a book, right? So when you pick up a book, it feels like a different activity. So I think that is the primary reason that books have survived. The other thing is that millennials grew up on Harry Potter. So they were primed to be willing to read long books, God bless them. Growing up on Harry Potter, Twilight, The Hunger Games, all of that, prepared them for reading long books. They grew up on, on great uh, YA books. And two, there's the object of the book that's appealing. And three, there's the fact that we're staring at a screen for a living. And so when you, when you cozy up in bed, there's nothing like cozying up with an actual book. All that being said, eBooks had stayed at 10% forever uh, for a very long time. And the first big bump they'd had for a long time was the pandemic. But we'll see if that lasts. So you, you're not worried about the future of the physical book? Nope, not at all. I think that books are here to stay. In fact, there's, there's an article in the New York Times called The Century of the Book that talks about how much people have continued to love their books. Just can further encourage me to continue to buy books 
Make books, write books. <laughs> Live in a world of books. Oh Lord, please don't let me be I hope you enjoyed that convo. Red Hen ships internationally, so I hope that no matter where you are, you might consider buying a book or more from them. There was so much to talk about when it came to literary publishing that Kate and I didn't get to discuss her work as a librettist and being president of the American Composers Forum. I would have been particularly interested in hearing about her collaboration on a libretto with Ursula K. Le Guin. So if you're interested in that branch of Kate's work, I encourage you to go check it out on your own. When I asked Kate for suggestions for music to use on this episode, she eventually named this song, Nina Simone's cover of Please Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. I think she suggested it simply because she likes the song, but then I realized it was a very fitting piece for talking about literature. If you want to know more about this podcast and the related blog and YouTube channel, go to ontheverge-trilogy.com, no W's. Here's to being on the verge. Understood.